Welcome to Dream Makers, candid conversations with women that will change the way that you see success, purpose, and what it takes to bridge the two. I'm Neha Sampat, a three-time tech founder and CEO with a focus on companies that are places to dream big, build up, and be a good human. I'm CEO of Content Stack and also a certified sommelier, hence the wine. I'm joined by Cindy Padnos, founder and managing partner of Illuminate Ventures. Illuminate is a seed and early stage venture capital firm that invests in enterprise and B2B software companies. She was ContentStack's first ever investor who led our seed round, and she's been with us through ContentStack Series A and B, which we most recently closed in June at $57.5 million for a grand total of $89 million invested in the company. I'm beyond grateful for Cindy's ongoing support. Today, we're going to talk about entrepreneurism, fundraising, and gender diversity in tech. Let's get started. Hi, Cindy. Hey, Neha. Great to be here. Thank you for spending some time with me today on fun topics that we both care a lot about. I don't want to embarrass you, but you're known as Queen B2B. Tell us why. (laughs) Well, there's a silly story behind it, but it turned out that early on in seed stage investing, when the first firms were getting started, this gentleman who runs a a conference contacted me and he said, "I I want to run a panel that focuses on seed stage B2B only firms and, you know, I want you to be on it. Who else can you recommend? And I started trying to give him names of other VCs that he should include. And each time he would say to me, no, they do consumer. No, they also do healthcare. I want people who only do B2B. And I said, well, I guess that's it. That's all I do. It's like the, the you know, the, the queen of hearts. And he said, no, it's the queen of B2B. <laughs> <laughs> you've been doing that and, and kind of focusing on that for a while and have gained a ton of expertise, which you've then lent to CEOs like me, and it's been super valuable. So thank you for choosing that path. It's my own background. It's my history. I don't think you can do seed stage investing well if you don't invest in what you know. And this is what I know and my partner, Jennifer, know you know really, really deeply. And we're frankly just really privileged to have the opportunity to invest behind you and in content stack. We're just delighted to be a part of the, your journey. Awesome. Let's talk about the wine because I promised wine. So both Cindy and I have a bottle of a Chablis here and I'm going to just show the label on camera, but those that are listening on audio only, I'll tell you what it is and you can see more in the notes. So today we're drinking Jean-Paul Duan Chablis Villon and it's a Premier Cru from 2018 is the vintage. And we're just going to have a quick sip and, and see what we smell and, and taste. And you can't see this necessarily even that well on camera, but it's got such a lovely golden hue to it. And sometimes you see white wines that are just super pale in color. This is not that at all. It's got almost like a, like a light gold ring kind of thing, like a beautiful color. Yeah, it really is. It's incredible and really nice nose. And for me, I get the taste of it all the way across my palate, which isn't for me always true of, of white wines. So in the aroma, I'm getting kind of dried fruit, almost like a dried pineapple or maybe some green olive and a little bit of toast, which comes from, there's just a neutral barrel used. And what's interesting is when you think about toast, you often think about like a California Chardonnay and that's almost like not what you want to find if you're a Chablis lover. But in this one, it's really subtle and very neutral. Really subtle oak just a really nice light acidity 
which is to that citrus kind of a feel to it a little bit. Absolutely. So about this producer and region. So Chablis is the Burgundy region that produces Chardonnay. And a lot of people don't necessarily know that. They think of Chablis as something completely different. So if you think you don't like Chardonnay, before you can credibly proclaim that position, you have to at least try a Chablis because they're really quite beautiful and different than Chardonnays that we have accessible oftentimes in the U.S. And this is a premier crew. If you look at kind of the, the way that that's broken down in the Burgundy region, the Grand crew is the top dog. The tier just below it is the premier crew, which is what we're having today. And a crew in general in Burgundy designates a really high quality vineyard. So we're having a high quality Chablis, but it's not at the top of the list. And so it's not the most expensive. It's in the 40 to $45 range. So accessible to many people. Okay, so we obviously both love wine. <laughs> and so I want to hear a little bit more about your wine journey. I think when we met, we probably first started to meet over a glass of wine when we started talking about working together and doing business together. I know you spend a lot of time in Napa Valley. Just tell us about that and, and why you love wine. Uh, well, it, it started a very, very long time ago. I had the opportunity when I was a teenager to live for a summer in France, um, effectively as an au pair to a family that had six children between the ages of 13 and two. It wasn't supposed to be an au pair, but it kind of turned out that way. But the good news side of it was that the family decided that since I was 16, I was of age as far as the French were concerned, which meant when we went out for family meals, which was all the time, I was served wine. And I, at the age of 16, really learned to understand and enjoy wines because I was in France and not drinking expensive wines typically, but a lot of variety, lighter reds and, and whites. And it was in the summer, so a lot of white wines and even sparkling whites and that sort of thing. And so I remember when I was sent home from that, they sent me home with a couple of bottles of champagne for my parents. And I got to customs in the U.S. and I'm 16, right? And they wanted to confiscate them. But the people had written me a note that saying that they were for my parents as a gift and customs actually let me through with the champagne. <laughs> I love the French There's a lot so more much. funny stories I can tell you. But I then later went and lived and, and studied for a year in the south of France in Aix-en-Provence. I had an opportunity to go do the Vendage, meaning picking the vines at, you know, at the end of the season. I, again, drank a fair amount of wine as a, as a college student there. But I, what, I, what really happened was I fell in love with French culture, French food, and just the ambiance and atmosphere and the joy of life. As one of my friends one time said to me, I know why you moved to Napa. Well, I know why you bought your weekend place there. I said, well, if you know, you probably know better than I do. What, what do you think it was? And they said, it's the closest thing to France that you can get in the United States. <laughs> I, uh, and I laughed and I said, yeah, you, you might actually be right. I have to agree with that. And I, I knew that we had kind of a Francophile thread in common, but I didn't realize how common that thread was. So the parallel for me is that I studied abroad in Paris when I was a sophomore in college. And that was when I discovered the love for wine. And it was very similar. You know, at 19 years old, you have access to everything. And I actually was trying to figure out how to fund that trip because I was kind of on my own financially for it. 
And I was able to get two scholarships that allowed me to write about my experience in France. And one of them was about feminism in France, Le Deuxième Sex. And <laughs> the way that I wrote my paper on that was by visiting wine caves and writing about my encounters with the old men that ran the wine caves. <laughs> How fabulous is that? <laughs> so I learned a ton about wine and feminism in France. And it was actually one of my favorite experiences in college. So, I, and it never stopped. Well, it was my junior year that turned into my senior year. And interestingly enough, because I was studying in French, they allowed me to take classes across the university. So I ended up taking political science and economics and all of these classes that the undergraduate business school students were taking, even though I was a French major. <laughs> right? So how funny was that? Because that really is what influenced me and caused me to decide to go on to the business school later as well. I really didn't know that we were both French majors that eventually went to business school. That's a really cool thing that we uncovered on this That's podcast. Funny. Oh dear. And here we are today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here we are today and as an investor. So let's shift gears to that. I mean, before you were an investor, you started off as a founder. So maybe tell us a little bit about that journey, what company you found and what's happening with the company now. Oh, sure. So Vivant, you laugh because, of course, a French word that means alive or living uh, was the name of that company. And originally, by the way, the original, original name was Illuminate, but we found we had a trademark conflict. So I warehoused, if you will, that name, which is why we're now Illuminate Ventures, but we needed to change the name. And so I chose something that would be representative of what we actually did. We were one of the first platforms for procurement of contract labor. And it was at a point in time when many large organizations had as much as 30 or 40% of their IT workforce in particular were contractors. So everyone thinks the gig economy is new today. I, I hate to tell you it's not. Everything old is new again, as they say. <laughs> and the company was a very early SaaS software company. My partner, Jennifer, here at Illuminate Ventures, was the person I recruited to be our VP of products there. Jim Dye, who founded the company that, that merged with Coupon, which just went public this spring at raising $4.5 billion in their IPO, was our VP of engineering in that company. We sold the company to a publicly traded company here in the Bay Area about three years into the life of the company. So it was a venture-backed company. And that company was later acquired and is now part of Oracle. That's where the company is today. <laughs> and so... That's incredible to have an exit like that. But when did you and how did you make the transition to investor? Well, so the timing was super interesting because this was all happening as the dot-com bust was about to implode. And we had the very, very good fortune to be acquired you know, very early in that process, early enough that unlike a lot of our competitors that went bankrupt, we, we actually got an exit. But because of that, I had planned to go, you know, six months working with that company to do a transition, which I did, and then take a month when we were going to travel all through Europe, <laughs> back to France and Italy and all the rest of that. And we had that planned and 9-11 happened, uh, literally one week before we were supposed to leave on our month-long trip. So, of course, we couldn't go. We delayed a little bit later than planned, but we did still take the trip. And we came back and the trip was supposed to be in part, what do I do next? thinking, you know, just relax and enjoy, but also, you know, clear my head to give some thought to that. I returned and because of the combination of, of, of things that had gone on, I came to realize that there were a lot of VCs that wanted me to come and help them. 
They wanted me to help with portfolio companies that were in trouble, where they had founders with no real you know, experience as CEOs before that were running them because a lot of companies were funded with very inexperienced entrepreneurs, you know, during that, that prior period. But there was also a group that still had capital they wanted to deploy very strategically. So I found myself being invited to work with them. I apprenticed myself to some of the best VCs in Silicon Valley is basically what really happened unintentionally. I can't say I intended to do it, but mm-hmm. I learned from people at Scale Ventures and Benchmark and more David Ao and USVP and others over about an 18-month period and then was invited to join a firm called Outlook Ventures. One of the partners there had worked with me at Booz Allen years previously. They were looking for a new partner. I joined them, invested out of that fund for four years, and then took some crazy beans again, decided I really was still an entrepreneur at heart, and decided it was time to launch my own firm. The crazy beans is also a common thread. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of mystery, especially in kind of younger entrepreneurs around how the VC process works and where VC companies get their money. Could you break that down a little bit for us in just as layman terms as possible? You know, that's a really interesting and important question. And it's not one I actually ever thought about as an entrepreneur. I just assumed VCs had capital. And they just wrote checks. And I never thought about where they got their capital. Mm -hmm. And turns out, I at least did understand that before I launched my own firm. I don't think I truly understood it, or perhaps I wouldn't have. Because as a founder and CEO, I needed one yes from an investor. I needed one group, as you were talking about before, to believe in me, to believe in my mission, and to be that lead to then not only invest, but perhaps bring one or two other firms in. When you raise a venture capital fund, you might need a dozen of those or more. And they don't introduce you one to another very typically. And so you need a lot of yeses and it's a lot of work. And if you've never done it before and you don't have those contacts and relationships, that is a, is a big undertaking. So there are certain terms in the industry like pre-marketing. I had never heard the word pre-marketing before. And, and people who are VCs will just be laughing if they listen to this podcast. It's like, what? You know, of course, pre-marketing. Well, when you're an entrepreneur, you know that you only have one chance to make a first impression. But you also know, based on that first impression, that investors likely to either say no or move ahead. And if they move ahead, they're serious. Well, there's a whole concept in someone raising a fund for a firm now that I understand of build relationships. It may take one to two years to build a relationship with a potential investor. They're called limited partner investors, LPs. And they may say to you, God, it was just great meeting you. Everything you do is so interesting. Love your track record. Strategy is is a really good fit with us. We're completely allocated for this year. Let's talk again when you raise your next fund. Let's keep in touch. Let's build a relationship. That's a very different scenario from what you're going to hear from an investor in a startup, right? And so there's a great deal to learn about also wanting the right kinds of relationships. Investors who have the wherewithal and the interest to participate in your next fund, which you might raise three years later when you don't yet have returns to write checks back out and return their capital. 
seed stage investing, our best investments take eight, 10, even 12 years to go from startup to exit. It's a long haul, especially when you're just getting started because building the track record takes time as well. I had the good fortune that I had some track record from that prior firm, but it wasn't a big brand either. It was a good firm and, and the investments I made um, returned three X of invested capital, so, so good returns. But you don't know that just four years in. I yeah. knew I had a great portfolio. We took two of those companies public, one through a very quick M&A, and, and one was a complete splat on the landscape failure, which is, thank God I had one of those early on, to be honest, to, to learn some lessons from that. Cindy, can you tell us what you think the main reasons are that startups fail? Well, the easy answer is they run out of cash, <laughs> but which, by the way, you can laugh about, but it is, uh, you know, just keeping your eye on cash flow is, is unbelievably important. But if you go to the fundamental root cause of, of why that happens, either one of two things typically happens. One is you spend too fast before you really know you have product market fit, or you hire in a way that assumes that everyone understands what it's like to be in a startup when frankly they frequently don't and so that great salesperson that you hire out of oracle who's used to having everything handed to them the playbook is handed to them the customer awareness of their brand is handed to them you know making the wrong choice in that early sales process can be can be very very difficult so you have to spend time just like entrepreneurs have to spend time reporting back to their investors on progress in a similar way you're doing that with LPs on a regular basis. Every quarter, uh, annual meetings. And if you are really building relationship, which is important to us, you're talking them it to them in between. You're meeting with them. Many of our LPs are also advisors to our firm. We have um, something you know we call our business advisory council with 45 people around it. Um, most of them are LPs as well. And they are incredibly helpful to us, not their capital as much as their know-how and, and, and many other aspects of, of what they contribute. Absolutely. And, and I feel like they're also an asset to the portfolio companies from my own experience, right? They want to lean in and help the companies be successful. And that's something that I know you're very passionate about from firsthand experience. And when I come to you for help with something, you've always been there and had great ideas and made connections where it made sense. I'm curious what you enjoy the most about being an investor. What parts of the role? I think I'm the luckiest person in the world, to be honest with you. I get all of the excitement and learning of everything that's new in this B2B world, in this whole enterprise software category. I get an education from every entrepreneur that that I meet with. And then we get to choose the ones that we can partner with where, where, where it's a mutual good fit and work with them to grow their businesses for the next six, eight or 10 years, right? I love that. And by the way, they don't all succeed. I, I don't wanna suggest that they do, but you know, we're around when the times are tough as well um, to help entrepreneurs think through the options, uh, find a strategic acquirer if it's possible. We've done that multiple times. And even our portfolio advisors, that advisory group, they have made amazing direct introductions when it comes to portfolio exits for us as well. So the best part is the learning and the relationship. It's those two things. 
How do you find the companies that you invest in? And, and then what makes you know that you want to go down the path with a particular company? Well, we have a fairly unique set of investing criteria. In some ways, as you know, we really pride ourselves on opening the door wider. And that opening the door wider is not just about women or diversity. It's also about attributes that a lot of VCs look at and basically say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. I'm not interested. So we love spin-outs. We love companies that have bootstrapped as, as you, um, as Content Stack, and you did. We love companies that maybe took SBIR grants to get further along before they chose to raise capital or started as IT services businesses and found a repeatable problem. We look for those things. And our advisory group knows that. Our own startup founders know that. If you look at our total deal flow, which we do over the last five years, first of all, it's thousands and thousands of, of qualified businesses. But if you then look at which ones we've actually invested in, more than three-fourths of them were referrals from our own network, from the advisory council, from our own CEOs, from a group we call Friends of Illuminate that are relationships that Jennifer and I have had, my partner Jennifer Savage and I have had for many, many years as entrepreneurs and investors in this ecosystem. We look at all of them. We're kind of remarkable in that every business plan that comes in, we take a look at. We pass on the vast, vast majority of them very, very quickly. I remember really clearly, Cindy, there was a day you and I were sitting on a bench in the Presidio in San Francisco. Freezing. We were it cold. Was cold. <laughs> we both had like really busy packed schedules and it was a short opportunity to meet in person. And we were trying to make a decision on who to move forward with, with as an investor. And you were trying to make a decision on whether or not you wanted to make the investment in content stack. And I had asked you the question, what do you look for in a founder? Like, what are the characteristics? And at that time, you said resilience. And it's something that really stuck with me because I consider myself a really resilient founder, given all the ups and downs over the last 15 years of building companies. And it actually, like when you said it, it hit a chord that like made me want to be even more resilient and continue to work on that part of my game. And so it stuck with me for a really long time. I'm curious about that, but also, is there another trait that would stand out to you? Well, you know, I think resilience, just to, you know, add a little bit to what you said and and maybe help listeners understand why I think it's important. It's not just about survival. It's about the impact of being in a startup environment. There day to day are peaks and valleys, almost every hour, sometimes in one day you can have a peak and a valley. The customer that says no or doesn't renew and the award you get from Gartner Group, all happening in the same day, right? And and, and so resilience is about understanding how to sort of level that a little bit, particularly as it impacts your team, as it impacts others. It's one thing to have a little bit of that angst or whatever it might be inside your own system, but it's super important to demonstrate to the people you work with that the company is resilient, the technology platform you've built is resilient, the team you've built is resilient, and and that they'll step in and help when somebody needs it, which I know has happened time and again in your company, including even what's gone on with COVID in India and how members of your team have stepped in to help other members of your team, right? Resilience isn't a, a one person kind of a thing. It's really about building that into the entire ecosystem of your business. And it's really meaningful. 
In terms of what else we look for, you know, we're, we tend to be a firm that is more interested in a founder who has deep domain knowledge, deep customer awareness versus one that is just about deep technology. Many of our companies have deep technology as, as you do, but it's the added, that's sort of to us, that's the necessary but not sufficient ingredient. And so it's like a great wine. You can have great terroir, but if you don't have a great winemaker, it, it's not enough, right? Okay, so you know the platform is the terroir, but it's it's the rest of the organization that has a real understanding and passion for the customer that we love to see. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting if you look at my background, not being an engineer, not being technical, but having a technical co-founder who I consider to be a genius and, and a team around that that is super smart, having that enterprise knowledge, the B2B expertise, but then honing in on like, what's the real business problem we're trying to solve? And all of us kind of being excited about that and, and banding around it. That's, I think, something that's been unique about what we do. And I, I can totally see that. I know you invest in a lot of different types of companies, but speaking from experience, you've taken a special interest in seeing women be successful. Why is that? Well, okay, there are several fundamental reasons not the least of which is it's a pleasure to work with really talented women. And there have been too few of them that have been given the opportunity to succeed. I know I was given that opportunity and I'm really grateful for it. But I also know without a doubt that it was harder for me to raise capital for my business than for most of the guys that that were out there raising capital at the same time. And I, I just fundamentally believe that if we create a level playing field, if we open the door wider, we give the opportunity, not just to women, but also just all different types of diverse founders. We have multiple Latino founder CEOs. We have multiple LGBT founder CEOs. We have many women founder CEOs in our portfolio. What you'll find is unique opportunities that outperform and, and we're seeing that across all three of our funds today, our, our Spotlight Fund, uh, Fund One, and Fund Two. Our best performing companies have diverse founding teams and have had the opportunity and the choice, uh, have chosen, I should say, to build diverse teams around themselves. Every piece of data that anyone could possibly present shows that more diverse teams are more innovative And I don't know where innovation is more important than in our tech sector. Absolutely. And that diverse set of opinions at a table doesn't just impact the tech, but it also impacts how the business is run and how you present the business to prospects and customers and partners. And it does have an impact in in the overall performance. And you track that. You've been tracking that across your portfolio. I'm delighted that it's a topic that's come to the forefront today. But it takes more than that to actually, you know, do something about it. What do you think investors should be doing that they're not? Or what more can they do? And not just investors, but leaders as well, CEOs of companies. Well, there are, you know, there are a variety of things that, that can be done. One of them is, I'll take an example. There was a very large tech corporation. Um, I'll let you try to figure out who. <laughs> very, very large tech corporation that had a single woman on the board. I knew this woman 
you know, this you might be able to look up because she was a Carnegie Mellon grad like me. And I talked with her one day about why there was only one woman on the board still. This is quite a long time ago. And she said, well, you know, I first of all insisted if I was to join the board, I wanted to be on the nominating and governance governance committee so that I could influence who we would evaluate. But then the next thing I knew, the same old criteria was being applied. And the individual that was being sought had to be an operating CEO, had to come from the tech sector, had to, you know, and you just kept going down the list to the point where it became, well, this narrows it to one of five people who are already, five women who would already be sitting on 10 board seats because they were in so demand. How do we open the door wider? How do we make it possible for more women and more people of diverse backgrounds to be considered for these roles? And so she was instrumental in that process by literally demanding that they remove one of the criteria. Not, not lower the standard, but just remove one of them, lessen the constraints on one of these requirements. And she let the rest of the board pick. And all of a sudden the floodgates opened and they had dozens of qualified candidates that came from more diverse backgrounds. I, I think the same can be true in any role. That's, that's a very specific example in a board situation, but any role you're recruiting for, you have to look at your criteria, look at your constraints, and see how that's narrowing your pool in a way that's probably inappropriate. And that might, if one constraint was lessened, and, and maybe even an, another one added, it, it's not about lowering a standard or something, but it is about insisting that you provide uh, a candidate pool that includes diversity. Doesn't mean you have to select the diverse candidate, but open the door wide enough to have really great candidates and then select. I haven't heard you say open the door wider before, but you've said it a few times today and I really love it. I I feel like it can apply not just to investors and the conversation we're having now, but we think about that too, from the standpoint of recruiting and tech and we're trying to hold ourselves accountable for opening the door wider and figuring out how do you bring the people into jobs in tech that might not traditionally have been there or known to go there. And a lot of that goes into getting to them earlier in STEM education and a lot of that. But it's also, it comes back to, like you said, opening the door wider, opening up your network and and helping others to see that there is a path and, and that relatability that comes with that. I think that's so true. But, you know, the, the, the barriers are kind of hidden barriers as well, some of them. I, I know, for example, most VCs would never invest in a company that had two family members in it. We have probably 25% of our portfolio company does. We have identical twin sisters in one. We have brothers in another. We have husband and wife in two of them. I I could go on, right? And we never let those things become the barrier that immediately shuts the door. We look at the opportunity first and we assess that as a risk. But if all of the other factors outweigh that risk, that to me is opening the door wider as well. Same with ageism. Oh my gosh, it's rampant in Silicon Valley. We have portfolio companies where not a single founder is under the age of 50. That's unique. Yeah, it is unique. I mean, the company I'm thinking of is a phenomenal business and will be a really excellent addition. It has been a really excellent addition to our portfolio. So what's interesting about that is if you think about investment capital, typically, it's about access a lot of the time. And a lot of that access comes from being 
a Stanford person or being in, in Silicon Valley where you have kind of access to Sand Hill Road and you know people that have successfully raised capital there, or maybe your one of your parents, or your neighbors has that access. And that's changing. And I, and I think one thing that I like to tell younger entrepreneurs and especially women is that you need to leverage your networks and build a network around you to help lift you up if you want to go down this path. So knowing that a lot of success is tied to access, how can women entrepreneurs find the support systems that they need, especially at an early stage? Well, a lot of people don't even think about one group, which I will call your service providers, okay, as a source of that. But especially if you are in a remote location, there's absolutely no reason why you can't have a Silicon Valley attorney, as an example. You can be in any city in the U.S. and still have an attorney that represents you who's super well-connected and can make some of those introductions. And they do, by the way, if you choose the right one. So, so that, you know, there's this automatic leapfrog that's possible. And by the way, when you go find one of those attorneys, you're selling to them as well. They choose who they want to work with because they typically will defer their fees, which, you know, I've, I've talked to entrepreneurs we've invested in from Pittsburgh and from Philadelphia. And and these are still big cities, mind you, but they didn't link up with a Silicon Valley firm or a Silicon Valley mentality firm. And they had to come up with the cash, you know, to pay these attorneys up front. And I remember just being shocked by that. I was like, what? You know, that's not the way it's done. Right. And, And if you're in Holland, Michigan, where I grew up or lots of other smaller towns, you wouldn't even be aware of that being an option to you. There are, are many ways to build network and you should frankly pursue all of them. And remember both of us were members of Springboard Enterprises and that network really did actually open a lot of doors for me and open the door wider to my thinking, actually. I'm curious about your experience with Springboard and, and just other networks like that. Well, Springboard was a little different for me because I didn't actually go through the program. I'm kind of an honorary alum because what happened was the woman who was the CEO and just retired, CEO for 20 years there, she reached out to me because the uh, my funding had been announced. We had just raised $4 million in a, in a Series A. There was no seed round back then. And she asked me if I would come and present at the first ever conference that they were having. And she told me about the program. I said, oh, my God, this sounds like an amazing program. I wish I had known about it, you know, before I went off on my, you know, year-long effort to raise capital. And she said, well, that's exactly why we want you to come. We want you to present your pitch that you shared with the investors that actually worked. We want the other women to see that it can be done. So it was a super unique opportunity for me because I did get to meet all of the other members. They've treated me like gold since then and in terms of our relationship. I've been on the advisor side to them for many years as well. Uh, I think it's an incredible program. That first year, it was Asti and Springboard doing the event together, uh, which I thought was really interesting as well. Asti was called the Women's Technology Cluster back then. They had a different name, same team. So they were the, you know, Bay Area-based group and Springboard was the uh, East Coast-based group. And they decided that the right strategy was to bring everyone together. And to be honest, at that time frame, it was probably because there weren't enough women founders yeah. uh, that they would have had a, you know, a significant enough size group in their opinion. And both Asti and Springboard were super influential in, in my journey. And I learned a lot from participating in the programs and just 
meeting people through those networks. I mean, you're a queen networker. I know you're known as queen B2B, but I also see you as a queen net connector. Talk about that a little bit. Is that your superpower? I know you've built this incredible advisory board. You've been an advisor to many companies and people come to you and look up to you for that. What is that about? And is that your superpower? Superpower, superpower. (laughs) The advisory council is certainly a superpower. I call it a secret weapon uh, to our firm. And that group of 45 people has sat on over 100 public company boards and over 250 private company boards, all in the tech sector. Well, not not all the public companies, but all of the the private companies and uh, tech-related companies. And they, most of them are LPs in our, our funds, and they are amazingly helpful, not just with introductions for deal flow and for many of them have become initial customers within our portfolio. Companies are made introductions that resulted in that, helped with exits. Some have taken board seats within the portfolio. I knew the value of that kind of group because I had had the same thing for my own startup. And I also knew that what was important about it was not that they just be advisors to me, but but to our whole team. And I think of our portfolio CEOs as part of the team. And so my view was that means we have to have people who can help be helpful to a VP of engineering and a CEO and a VP of marketing all across our portfolio, as well as to, you know, us from helping with due diligence or deal flow or whatever it might be. So that caused us to create a really unusual network, but I had had the experience of the value of that in my own startup first. And that's why I knew how, and we did the same. We had Mike Stonebreaker who, you know, was the the person, the genius who conceived of SQL, right? As an advisor, he wasn't an advisor to me. He was to our VP of engineering. We had David Coulter, who was vice chairman at Chase at the time. And he, by the way, was the one who told me it was time to sell the company right before the dot-com bust. I thought he was out of his mind at first, but as I dug in deeper to understand his perspective, I realized he was right. So yeah, they're they're amazing. But I will say, I think the second one is also resilience. It has not always been easy to be a founder or to be a VC. I can guarantee you that. And resilience is not just about working harder. It's also about um, being creative, about finding ways around instead of over the top sometimes. And I think that's a superpower as well. It absolutely is. And I always like to say, if it was easy, anybody could do it. And (laughs) that in a way makes us two peas in a pod. It's not easy, but hopefully we're still having fun and at least we're smiling and and drinking some wine. So I'm going to move on to rapid fire because we're running out of time. And I typically at the end of this, will ask four questions and just answer as quickly as you can and whatever comes to your mind. The first is what's your wake up song? I actually don't have one. I don't set an alarm clock. I wake up. If I'm traveling, I'll set a song. Well, everyone knows it. You are my sunshine. (laughs) And it's because my grandfather used to sing it to me. (laughs) That's a really good one. If your 19-year-old you asked you today what they should read or what they should listen to, what would you say? Well, this is only if it's me, because not everyone loves history the way that I do, but I have a passion for it. There's a book called 1491, uh, written by Charles Mann, that tells the story of North America pre-Columbus in a way that you won't believe. 
it actually won the, I think it was 2006 or eight National Academies Award for the best book in science and technology, and yet it's history. And it's, it's just a super interesting story that's different from anything you were ever taught in school about what North America looked like and uh, before Columbus and, and how the invasion of us white folks changed things. Super interesting. Okay, I will be adding that to my list and it will we'll include it in the notes as well. Is there a wine you can recommend? Oh my gosh. So one of my favorite winemakers and, and favorite for a lot of people is Heidi Barrett. Of course, I have to pick a woman winemaker here in Napa Valley, but she is um, you know, the winemaker for many different wineries. One of the wines that she makes is a, a wine called Vin Perdu, which in French means lost wine. It's a blend. It's frequently a combination of from her own wines at you know, her, her own winery, but also Fantesca and a couple of other wineries that, that contribute estate grown. It's usually a blend of Cab, Syrah, Merlot, Petit Verdot. But my favorite part of it, to be honest, the wine is phenomenal. It's sub $100, which to me is kind of the limit before you can recommend it to other people. Not by much, but a little bit. And it has this phenomenal label every year that's done by an artist that's actually a hologram. And it's super oh, fun. That's really cool. <laughs> I've seen that label before. Okay, last question. What should our listeners do tomorrow to help them become dream makers? You know, I, I think the world is about giving back. The world is about not just taking in. And so if you want to be a dream maker, you have to help inspire other people's dreams as well. So I would suggest they reach out to two people, just two, that have impacted their lives and, and tell them how they've impacted their lives in a positive way. That is such specific and prescriptive advice. Thank you for sharing that. I love it. I would like to make a toast to you, Cindy, for multiple things. One, being my first investor and first believer. Thank you for that. Thank you for being on Dream Makers. And here's to opening the door wider. Cheers to you. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Dream Makers podcast. You can reach out to me, Neha Sampat, on Twitter at NehaSF, that's N-E-H-A-S-F, with your comments, suggestions, your favorite wake-up song, wine, or Dreammaker Woman to know. Please also leave a review and subscribe to Dreammakers wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, keep dreaming big, building up, and being a good human. <laughs>